Hey everyone, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's podcast. I hope that it encourages you and inspires you, and I hope that you have some community around you to talk through these truths and concepts with. If you don't have community like that, we would love to invite you to be a part of Restore. You can get all the information about our church at restoreaustin.org. We would love to see you soon at one of our Sunday gatherings, and we hope you enjoy this week's podcast. During our first Christmas season back in 2016, um, it was our first Christmas as a church, we did something called the 12 Days of Jesus. I don't know if you can see this. It's super cool, beautiful layout and design by the one and only Emily Gonzalez. Um, Thank you, Emily. Shout out to you. And Leo and a baby on the way watching. Um, This is a Christmastide devotional, and it was just 12 days of exploring the life of Jesus, kind of similar to the 12 months we're spending exploring the life of Jesus and our year in the life of Jesus. And this thing was so much fun to be a part of the creation. Um, Emily did all the design. Matt and I wrote a lot of it. Um, There was editing that was involved by Amy, my wife, and so many others that pitched in to make it happen. Um, even as we were just this kind of little core team of a church at the time. And it's just, like I said, 12 days of exploring stories of Jesus. So it was about when he comes, when he gets born, he grows, he heals, Jesus weeps, Jesus challenges, Jesus serves, Jesus prays. But my favorite by far is day four, and it's called Jesus Celebrates. Now, To be honest, I wanted to call it Jesus Parties with Prostitutes and Criminals, but I got voted down. Uh, That didn't make it through the editing process. It's the story of Jesus going to this party thrown by his newest disciple, Matthew. Now, at this point, Matthew's been a disciple of Jesus for like five minutes. So when he throws this big party, he invites his friends, the only people he knows, which are other tax collectors, prostitutes, and, and quote-unquote sinners of various kinds. And so that's who Jesus goes to party with. But here's the craziest thing about this story. It's not a random occurrence. It's not a one-time thing. Jesus seemingly throughout his life never misses an opportunity to party with irreligious people. I vividly remember making this, working through the life of Jesus as I wrote this devotional and being awestruck by how much time he spends with folks that any good Christian would tell him to stay away from. This morning we are in week three of a teaching series called Going Public. And it's about the time in Jesus's story when he transitions from leading a very private life to leading a very public ministry. This time includes forming relationships with people who would spend the rest of their lives by Jesus's side. Matthew is one of those folks. We have mostly been in Luke's account as we have journeyed through Jesus's life over the last few months, but our story today is found in both Luke and Matthew's account. So we're going to look at Matthew's account simply because the story is actually about him. So if you have your Bible or or a device, turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 9. It says, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, now Luke's version actually tells us it was this great banquet, this big party. Many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the disciples saw this, they asked his, or excuse me, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? 
Now, we're not going to spend as much time today focusing on Matthew's vocation of tax collecting because actually next week we're going to wrap up this series by looking at the incredible diversity of Jesus's closest followers, the 12 disciples and the women that were closest to him. And we'll talk a lot more about their backgrounds on that Sunday. But for now, it's important to just know that tax collecting was very looked down upon. Jewish tax collectors like Matthew worked for the occupying Roman government. So the Jewish people viewed tax collecting as stealing money from your own people to give it to the enemy. So tax collectors were essentially excommunicated from the community, right? Along with other detestable people like prostitutes and drunks and lepers and many others. So Jesus recruits Matthew as one of his disciples, which in and of itself is a huge deal. Remember last Sunday, Bonnie talked about how disciples were usually picked by rabbis and teachers. They were selected from the best young men in the temple. The rabbi would go, they would teach, they would kind of interview all the best young men in the temple, and they would pick the best of the best to be their followers. So not only does Jesus not pick one of the best of the best, he picks one of the guys that the religious leaders hate, that they despise, that they have kind of kicked out of the Jewish community. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Matthew throws a great banquet at his house in honor of uh, his new rabbi. And like any of us would, Matthew invites his friends to come. But like I said a minute ago, since he's been kind of kicked out of the mainstream community by the religious leaders, his friends are all tax collectors and other sinners. Now, the Pharisees, who are the most powerful group of Jewish religious leaders, see what's happening and and they don't like it. They're uncomfortable with it. They think it's inappropriate. So they ask some of Jesus' other disciples, what is your guy Jesus doing? Why is he eating and drinking with all these people that we know are detestable in the eyes of God? Now is the time I need to make another vital cultural observation for us to understand what's really going on here. You see, eating and drinking with someone in the first century was a much bigger thing than it would be today. Think about it like this. Like if if you got in trouble with your parents for hanging out with some kind of sketchy people, right? And you told them it wasn't that big of a deal. We we just kind of grabbed some food together one time. That's it. Your parents would probably be relieved. They'd be like, oh, it's not that deep relationship. It's kind of a surface level thing. They just got some food together one time. It's not that bad. But eating and drinking with someone in the first century culture was anything but surface level. Listen to how author scholar Matthew Malcolm Smith describes it. In our Western culture, our first thought in eating is to satisfy hunger. There may be other reasons we eat, but essentially we eat together because it's mealtime and we are hungry. In the countries of the Middle East, eating was and still is a relational event. One ate bread to declare, establish, and nurture and seal a covenant relationship. Let me say that again. One ate bread to declare, establish, nurture, and seal a covenant relationship. To eat with someone was called table fellowship and meant that the persons eating at the table now stood in covenant solidarity with each other. For Jesus to eat with tax collectors was not a social blunder done in ignorance. It was not a political gaffe of a newcomer in religious politics. He ate with them intentionally in a deliberate public act, sending a clear message that he knew could not be misunderstood by anyone. He was announcing that he was the friend the covenant partner of tax collectors and sinners. 
He was standing in solidarity with them, declaring a covenant of friendship. He sat there by choice and so accepted the shame, rejection, and hatred directed to them as his own. Sitting with them plainly said that he would go to any length and pay any cost to embrace them where they were. Now we understand, right? Even more clearly why religious leaders scoffed at Jesus as they watched him eat with the people they found detestable. They couldn't believe he would knowingly and deliberately enter into covenant friendship with those they considered unclean. But calling people unclean, deeming them unworthy of relationship is simply not the way of Jesus. It's not the way of the kingdom of God that Jesus came to usher in. Jesus is constantly expanding the boundaries of God's family to include anyone and everyone who wants to be a part of it. This expansion doesn't mean he's rejecting one group in favor of another. It simply means that all are accepted. The only credential required for a seat at Jesus's table is an earnest desire to be there. The only credential required for a seat at Jesus's table is a desire to sit there. The Pharisees don't understand. Either that or they're just unwilling to accept this from Jesus. But either way, they look down upon him as he eats and drinks at Matthew's party. But even though it was the disciples the Pharisees directed their question to, Jesus is the one who responds. Verse 12. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Now, this comment about his new friends being, quote, sick can kind of come across as confusing or even a little insulting to us today. Again, this is why understanding the context and culture of what's going on is so important when we're reading scripture. These tax collectors and sinners, they aren't literally sick, but they were treated as such by the community. A myriad of things could make someone unclean in this culture. Some of them were taken from the Jewish law and others were added by religious leaders later on. Here's a few examples of stuff that made you unclean. Skin disease, childbirth, menstruation, coming in contact with dead animals, eating forbidden foods, and so on and so forth. Any of these things would require removal from the community until purification could take place, and they would be allowed to come back in. These same rules of pushing out, in, uh, out of the community were applied to tax collectors, prostitutes, and other people pejoratively called sinners by the religious leaders. They were called sick and unclean and unworthy of participating in the community. Jesus wasn't okay with this. This was not something that he was just going to be quiet about, not something he was just going to ignore to stay focused on his mission. You see, the full inclusion of all people, especially those who had been cast to the margins, was his mission. In fact, this exclusion made him so angry that he yelled at the Pharisees about it later on in his ministry, Matthew 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. 
He says, you call them unclean, but in reality, you are the ones who are unclean. The religious leaders, you see, they only cared about looking good, not pursuing what is good. They cared more about their appearance than their hearts. That's the opposite of the way of Jesus. And by going directly to the, quote, sick people and entering into covenantal friendship with them exactly as they are, Jesus is flipping this whole concept of clean and unclean upside down. You see, people don't have to clean themselves up before coming to Jesus. Listen, they don't even have to come to him at all. He goes to them. He pursues them with his love. All they have to do is receive him. The same is true for humanity today. No matter who we are or what we've done, Jesus is pursuing us with his love and covenant friendship. His desire is to sit at our tables and enter into covenant relationship with you and with me. The Pharisees thought that the sinners would make Jesus unclean, but the opposite is true. Our sin doesn't rub off on Jesus. The righteousness of Jesus rubs off on us. How incredible is that? Jesus is the great healer of our sin, the great restorer of our lives, not because we participate in some ritual purification or have some religious experience. We are healed and restored simply by embracing Jesus. And that's exactly what Jesus did for the tax collectors and sinners in this story. He healed them. He restored them as they welcomed him in. But not only does Jesus heal their spiritual sickness, he also heals their socio-political sickness. Let me explain what I mean by that. You see, as we've said throughout the year in the life of Jesus, the kingdom of God is always both personal salvation and social justice. The men and women at Matthew's party had been treated unfairly. They struggled with sin like everyone else, but unlike everyone else, they had been unjustly cast aside. They'd been kicked out of community and treated like they were less than human. So Jesus heals them. He heals both the spiritual sin they committed and the social sin that was committed against them. He brings them both salvation and justice. He starts a new community, the kingdom of God, a place where everyone is welcome, everyone experiences healing, and everyone has a seat at the table. And after doing all that, Jesus has one final word for the religious leaders. Verse 13, he says, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The religious leaders cared more about their appearance than their hearts. Like I said, they cared more about looking good than pursuing what is good. But again, this is not the way of Jesus. So Jesus tells them, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Jesus here is quoting from the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament book of Hosea, verse six. Here's what it says. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. This is God speaking through the prophet Hosea to the Jewish people. Now, the context of this verse is very important. The nation of Israel, the Jewish people, they were keeping up with all the required religious rituals and sacrifices, but their hearts were far from God. 
They checked all the boxes but ignored the more important matters of loving their neighbors and serving the poor and caring for those in need. So God tells them, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I don't care about all the religious rituals. I care about how you treat people. I care about how you care for others. Jesus quoting the Old Testament is a clue for the Pharisees and for us today that Jesus is showing us a picture of who God is and who he has always been. This passage from Hosea isn't unique. You may recognize this message from all over Scripture because it's all over Scripture. In this passage from Amos, made famous partially by Dr. King quoting it, he says, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never failing stream. This is the heart of God. It shows up throughout the Psalms and the Proverbs too. Proverbs 21.3, to do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Obviously, it shows up again here in the life of Jesus, but it even continues throughout the teachings of the life of Jesus and the teachings of the early church as well. 1 John 4.20, whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. All over scripture, y'all, from the Old Testament to the New, God tells us that loving our fellow human is the greatest apologetic. Later in chapter 25 of Matthew's account, Jesus says that when we love and serve the hungry, the thirsty, the immigrant, the poor, the sick, and the prisoner, we are actually loving and serving Jesus himself. Simply put, we love God when we love others. We serve God when we serve others. I love how Pastor Andy Stanley says it. Love for God is best illustrated, demonstrated, and authenticated by love for others who are nothing like you and who may not even like you. When Jesus tells the Pharisees that God desires mercy, not sacrifice, it's not a random, off-the-cuff statement. Mercy is and has always been the heart of God. Now, we talk a lot about what it looks like to, to love our neighbor and pursue justice for the marginalized here at Restore. It's a core part of who we are as a church, and we believe it is, the, it is central to the message of Jesus and the purpose of the church. But today, this morning, I want to finish the message a little bit differently. Because the truth from this passage isn't just about how you love everyone else, it's about how God loves you as well. Let me say that again. Mercy isn't just about how you love everyone else. Mercy is about how God loves you. Look at the full verse from Hosea again. This is the New Living Translation. It's my favorite for being really easy to read, but still true to the original text. God says, I want you to show love, not offer sacrifices. I want you to know me more than I want burnt offerings. 
I want you to know me more than I want any of that religious ritual stuff. Jesus quoting this verse isn't just telling us that God wants us to love people more than he wants us to practice religious rituals. It certainly is that. But it's also Jesus telling us that his deepest desire, God's heart, the thing that is most important to him is that all people come to him, experience his love, and are mercifully welcomed into God's family. It's not only a message to us, it's a message for us. God is a God of mercy. He doesn't want perfection. He just wants you to come sit next to him at the table. You see, your sin isn't a barrier for him. He already took care of that. Scripture says he removes it as far as the east is from the west. Our God desires mercy not sacrifice. He desires relationship, not religious rituals. He desires you and me. And not some idealized version of us. He loves us fully and completely, just as we are. Yes, Jesus likes to party. And I love that about him. But he doesn't like to party for the sake of the party itself. He likes to party because it means intimate time with the people he deeply loves. He likes to party because it's a chance to enter into covenant friendship with each and every one of us. This is God's heart for the whole world, but it's also his heart for you. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to end with a song called Heart of God together. And if you can, I want you to close your eyes and I'm going to read some of the lyrics we're about to sing over you and then pray. So close your eyes with me. It says, here I stand before you now, as honestly as I know how, broken by the days gone by. Spirit, help my soul to rise. I try my best, but still I fail. And even then, you're with me there. You remind me I'm a child of God, regardless of the things I've done. My hope is found in perfect love. Let's pray. God, thank you for this incredible story. Thank you for mystifying and frustrating the religious leaders of your time with just how much you love people. Thank you for sitting down at that table, for welcoming even the most marginalized people into your family. Thank you for welcoming me into your family. Thank you for the invitation that welcomes each and every one of us, no matter who we are or what we've done, to sit next to you. Thank you that you heal us, God, that you forgive us of our sin, but you also heal the sin that's been committed against us, that you bring salvation and justice, that you're a God who loves us perfectly and completely so much that you took on flesh came to earth as Jesus lived this life filled with loving and caring for people, especially those who'd been pushed to the side. And then you laid your life down on the cross. 
for three days, everybody thought it was over, God, but then you came back. You overcame death and sin and evil, and you conquered it, and now you conquer it, not just for you, but for us. You give us the power to conquer it too. Not just someday in heaven, but right here and right now. So move in us, God. Help us to receive the depths of your mercy and love and then through us express your mercy and love to every single person we encounter. This is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.